Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hey Micah. Hi Olivia. How you doing? I'm good. The sun is shining. It's I think gonna be in the 80s today in New York City, everybody. So oh, this is a delayed podcast, but times Same are changing here. here. Yeah, I think we're both um, we're both struggling a little bit today. I think we're both excited to be here doing this. This is always fun. This always like puts me in a better mood. Me too. Me too. And you know, exciting stuff we have to talk about in general type news. I this isn't in links, but Ono Typeco released a font called Irregardless today, which I just think is Ooh. hilarious because that's the one that word. Oh my gosh, because it's not a real word. And I think his right. marketing is irregardless, not a word, but it's a typeface. I haven't looked at it too closely, but it's a, it's pretty funky. It looks pretty fun. Some of the specimen images I see have the dot of the eye is actually a heart, not a dot. So I'm trying to figure out what that all means, but some goofy, fun, you know, feast for your eyes on the internet that I came across today. That's cool. That's good. Yeah. Our nerd alert today, mm. all about magic it's optical illusions that you know are necessary and you encounter them often in type design and typography so things that go into the design of a font or lettering that actually makes it one elevated level of polished often means that you're using optical effects and optical illusions to make things look balanced. And that's just the start of it. We're going to go into several different optical effects. We have a lot of vocab words today that I didn't even know about. So yeah, stay tuned. Coming up soon. Well, shoot. All right. So let's jump in. Our cool, we have, we have a cool variety of links this week, I feel. Oh, yeah. And the first one, this was from Steph, right? Steph found this one. Yes, yes. Super nerdy. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Smashing Mag. They have lots of cool stuff. And this is a great example of currency design, designing the most desirable product. What a clever, what a clever title. This is from somebody named Julia May, who's a freelance copywriter. And it's just a really interesting beautiful like set of takeaways from like the the pros and cons of different currency designs yeah i love actually seeing currency from different countries because i always you know the united states one actually looks almost the most distinct out of all these examples of currency banknotes from different countries a lot of them are really colorful which i'm very jealous of i wish we had some colorful currency here a lot of them also have portraits on them because supposedly people think that banknotes that have portraits on them look a little bit more you know legit but it goes into the printing process of different banknotes around the world it goes into some of the history talking about the first ones were in china and they were even designed in a way that if you weren't literate you'd still be able to understand what was on the printed currency because it would depict someone holding 10 coins i thought that was pretty interesting and all about all the things we take for granted the green of the united states dollar is related to green being a symbol for growth and prosperity on the hundred dollar bill this was a fun one benjamin franklin's portrait is actually moved to the left so that it would wear out less when the bill is folded in half See, like such tiny, interesting details that none of us, I think, know are embedded in these 
designs. Totally. There's also this design of currency from Germany, from German's history. It was after World War One. There was like this big initiative to create Notgeld or emergency money to help get money in more hands of people. And it was crazy. It was designed by like a huge amount of designers. And so you have this currency that did not all look the same. It all had different aesthetics about, you know, some were really minimal, some were modern, some were taking from German heritage. And people actually started collecting the currency. And this is coming from different movements. So there's like expressionism, Dadaism, modernism within all of these different designs. And they link to a Flickr page that has all these Notgeld currencies. And it's like, oh my God, so entertaining to look at. Of course it's, it's all- on Flickr. Of course. Of course. That's where all the good type history is. And it's interesting seeing how people interpret different ways to create, you know, security and authenticity and different ways to create hyper detailed illustrations, because that is something that allows there not to be forgery. So how that's interpreted throughout history is pretty interesting. There's like a crazy dollar bill from the American Civil War in here that has like just the tiniest, tiniest details, but really, really funky. I can't believe our dollars looked like that at one point. Yeah, I feel like I I used to have some uncles that collected old currency and stuff because my family was all antique dealers. And so Mm -hmm. we, I've definitely, I haven't seen this particular one, but I've definitely seen ones that are roughly this weird and elaborate before. So weird. History. And so I looked at it and kind of just breezed past it because I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's normal. Not normal, obviously. But what I actually thought was super interesting was the currency redesign concepts. And there's a couple Mm. that are linked in here that were Mm. new takes and a whole a whole dollar redesign project that I didn't even know existed. That's super neat. Mm -hmm. That Norwegian crone. It looks really crazy. They did one side where it has, you know, kind of a pictorial illustration. Other side, it's all pixelated colors. Which, I mean, it seems so obvious what you said about complication being a deterrent for forgery. Mm -hmm. But I think most of us are not walking around the world thinking about forgery. And so we don't think about it and we just think like, oh, it's a neat design and that's it. But there's actually a utility behind why it's so weird and complicated and messed up. Yeah, I definitely like I'm definitely jealous of different countries interpretations of currency, like all the colorful, like the Swiss franc notes that are colorful and they're vertical because like when people count money, they're typically counting it vertically. Mm. That's so genius. I I remember being in Switzerland and loving the money that I was holding. And I was like, oh I got to save some of this. I'm just not going to spend it. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if there will still be progressions like this in the future. I mean, like when, for example, when I went to Iceland and I bet when you went to Iceland, I never got any cash or currency because every single place I went to took digital cards. So I just never ended up getting any banknotes. Oh, really? No, I did not. No, that was not me at all. I saved a bunch of money because I thought it was cool. I like the coins more than the bills most often, but still. Mm, okay, good to know. Next Shoot, time we got to go get traveling. you some Icelandic money. Somebody send her a kroner. Oh, Next kroner time I go there. Idea. It's a good motivation. All right. Fun stuff. Just like a super fun 
nerdy take on things we typically take for granted. Our yeah. next article, uh, you found this, Micah, and it's I titled- did find this, and this is this is a little bit of a stretch, but when I found it, I thought that it could apply a lot to the freelancers who are designers in our audience who would appreciate that. So the, the blog post here, it's a very straightforward, pretty simple to read blog post called Why You Need a Positioning Statement. And this is really- targeted towards developers in the writing, but obviously applicable. No, go ahead. I thought this was like, great. I think that's something we take for granted is how we talk about ourselves. You know, I think at some point in your life, you're going to either be going freelancing or you're definitely going to be trying to search for a job and you want to make sure that you stand out and are really clear and concise about the value that you're able to bring as a designer, as a developer, as a type designer. And I think this is just getting you thinking in the right direction. I think they have a really good example of what a positioning statement is. So they're like, okay, you can compare two people. There's one person and it's John. John says he knows React. His code is good code. I mean, obviously very simple, but like a lot of, I could be like, hi, I'm Olivia. I'm a graphic designer. I know the Adobe Creator Suite and I work in packaging and brand identity. That's the equivalent to that. And then there's another candidate who says, She's Mary. And Mary says she solves business problems for series A companies on a hyper growth trajectory in the B2C SaaS space. She does that with React. So lots of so much developer jargon, my goodness. But it gives you a better idea of what Mary hyper targets as her focus as being a good developer and what she's able to do and specifically where she's working and what she's interested in doing. And then like the actually thing that gets least amount of priority is the very literal act of how she gets things done, which is she does that with React, which is a coding language. So thinking about the way you talk yourself, talk about yourself in ways that like actually can bring value to other people in the world and your teams, people have a tendency to lean in towards that. And then they're going to, you know, look at your technical skills and they'll probably assume that you have technical skills if you solve mm-hmm. business problems for a type of company on a hyper growth trajectory, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I love this. And okay. So first of all, this isn't targeted just towards freelancers. If anything, it's kind of saying, if you're applying for a new job, you could position yourself in this way and be a more appealing candidate. Mm-hmm. And so I think it works for both sides. And I think sometimes it's, hard to figure out what that thing is for you because you have to pick a thing right Mm -hmm. and so there was a while that I stopped trying to be a developer in Mm -hmm. that in that verbiage and I was talking to a couple different companies and saying like oh I I don't remember the exact phrase that I was using but it, it kind of followed this pattern of like I achieve x for y using z and so it was something along the lines of like oh, I save startups time and money by designing custom internal tools for the teams that are not as efficient as they could be or something like that. Interesting. Yeah, that's super high. That's like hyper-specific, but like a great example of like a different you know, way to use this positioning. And, and you can like change your positioning statement based on who you're talking to if you want to, you know, like that's because that was what I wanted to be doing in that moment, not because I wanted it for like the rest of my life. But I was like, you know, I'm I'm talking to whatever it was, like the Washington Post or something. Mm-hmm. And I know that they're looking for somebody to help with building custom internal tools. So I go into it saying that sentence and they're like, oh, this is the guy. Totally. And they recommend putting a positioning statement on your resume. So like 
even a greater excuse to switch it around depending on who you're, you know, applying for. I think even like in 2020, ugh, the beginning of 2020 feels like 10 years ago, but I was like applying both for a position at Bon Appetit. And then I think like two months later, very happy. I didn't go there. Two months later, I was at, I was applying for a business at the Atlantic and definitely different vibes, like the Atlantic, much more formal, much more like elevated literary interests mm. is like everyone at the Atlantic and Bon Petit is still somewhat obviously literary, but more funky, fun, cooking, young, hip. So in those two cases, it would help to like, be like, okay, here are the different ways I could approach you and you. And then I ended up at JKR, which is totally different. But I think that I'm a multidisciplinary designer who often has a hard time narrowing my stuff down about what I do because I do a few different things. But it is always best when you're actually honing in with someone. They want to know how your skills apply to their job. And like, you can you can figure it out. I think, Micah, you really helped me when I was first talking to JKR. I was like, well, I haven't done like super formal packaging or brand design projects, but you're like, but you work on systems and you work on book design and that's mm. going into the tiny details of things and systems are what make brand identity. So take what you have, pivot it a little bit to, you know, apply to a specific, you know, arena. And I think that was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like you have to, just because you apply to one job saying that you do this doesn't mean you only do that. Nobody's exactly. going to think you only do that. And also on the next thing, you can tell somebody else you'd only do something else, you know? I think you have like, you two have like a very broad range of skills, but like if you were going into apply for like a developer position, you wouldn't necessarily be like, and I take incredible photographs too. And I know you take right. incredible photographs. <laughs> It could be just a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> one, one or two of our, our wonderful type nerds out there know me on Instagram too. Like Aww. Caleb. I always talk to Caleb on Instagram. Oh, me too. All right. That, yeah, hopefully that's a useful article for anybody who's like thinking about moving on to the next thing, freelance or job-wise. 100%. I always think it's great. Like if we get to kind of go in a different direction occasionally, take a little break from the nerdy details and talk about the big picture. All right, guys. Our next article is... A lovely one. It's a postmortem actually discussing the process of the font called Trickster by the open source foundry Velveteen. And so this article actually mostly goes into the making of Trickster. Micah, <laughs> do you remember us talking about this back in 2017? Trickster specifically? This font and no. the making of this font. No, oh God, I don't remember exciting. that at all. What, what what was the context? When did we talk about it? We talked about it on a podcast. I don't know oh which one gosh. it was. I specifically remember when this font came out. It was late 2017. And I remember being like, this is so cool. <laughs> Velveteen was like emerging as the open source boundary that we know them as today. And you were like, this is cool. This is really crazy. I mean, it is really crazy. That's so funny. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I love the calli... Okay, so I won't just recount what we talked about. I mean, I love the calligraphic nature of this font. It is wild. It looks like if Satan had a font, it is both kind of medieval, but has like this very cynical air to it that's hard to describe. A lot of the shemless shapes are very drippy and like seem to have like just kind of like this ooze of evil coming out of it, which isn't the purpose of it. It was actually you know, adapted from Merovingian writing, which is 
a very old kind of writing that is, they're basically saying it's illegible now because people just stopped learning how to write it, which happened to a lot of medieval alphabets. But they give a great example of it in use. And it's like, it's as if black letter and Carolinian, which is our earliest form of lowercase letter forms, had a baby and it was kind of condensed type and very long ascenders and descenders. And it almost ha- looks like it could be influenced by really loose graffiti. Yeah, for sure. There's there's definitely references in here of the whole street cred section here, talking about mm-hmm. how taking it too extreme in the graffiti at first and then pulling back a little bit, I think, just to yeah. have an influence. For sure. I think that they have really crazy characters that kind of push the boundaries of legibility. Their lowercase g just go in every which way and it's really experimental. I love where they landed with the lowercase a that takes kind of inspiration from the gothic lowercase a. The r kind of has this weird drippy feeling to it. And even the F says it was influenced by a medieval weapon, if that gives you any idea about where this font goes. But overall, just interesting to hear about the process of a typeface that starts somewhere, kind of ends somewhere totally different. And it has such distinct characters and learning about how the type designer Jean-Baptiste Morizot kind of adapts them to even the smallest characters like a question mark or a comma or a period. I think it's... Jean, did I say Jean-Baptiste? <laughs> oh, Jean-Baptiste. Thank you, Micah. Here to help. Thanks. So yeah, and they also had an exhibition with a bunch of posters using this font. So if you're thinking, how the heck would anyone use this? This is a crazy typeface. They have a great example of people using it. My favorite poster, if you look on the collection, is someone like setting what looks like code in this font. Micah, you got to see this when you get a chance. Oh, I see it now. I think I totally missed that. I was so focused on you get to the page and you can test out the font and download it that I didn't even scroll further to see the fonts in use. Crazy oh, stuff. this is so neat. This is so crazy. Mostly because I can't even imagine where I how I'd use this typeface. Mm. So it's I love getting inspired by people that just like lean into it, you know? Yeah, there's like neat maps in this. And oh, that's like a cool, it looks like a record. That's cool. Yeah. Cool stuff. Great find. Great find. Great find. All right. Capping off our articles is the lovely resource bank released by Shillington in the past couple of weeks. I remember when this came out and it's called 50 Essential Free Resources for Graphic Designers 2021. Cool. Because we've talked about a bunch of these individual resources before. And there's certainly ones mm-hmm. that I haven't seen. So it's, there's plenty of new stuff. But like, we've definitely talked about like Pexels. Oh, for sure. For sure. Humans with open peeps. Open peeps. Uh, uh, the noun the project. Noun project. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, I use Icons 8 all the time too. Mm, good to know. I mean, there's a bunch of mock-up resources, which is always super helpful. I like wish those were around when I was in college. I feel like to make mock-ups, I'd like look up pictures on the internet, clone stamp out the watermarks, and then like <laughs> do my best. Like I felt like that's that was my life in college. And, like now there's people that gather mock-ups for you. Oh, could have saved me yeah. hours. Can't yeah. even tell you. Very even screenshot tools, which is pretty interesting. I don't always see that on these kind of resource banks. Design inspiration. I really like the link they gave called HTTPster. 
kind of looks like hipster, but just like a really beautiful website about inspiring uh, websites that have come out in the past like year or so. So it's kind of neat. Uh, I like this. This is a neat setup. Yeah. Yeah. I like there's like a timeline on the right that tells you when the website was published on the site. Oh, that's so cool. What the heck? Mm. This is neat. Yes. I'm a little disappointed by their font section. They seem to be missing at least one really fantastic place to find super high quality, great open source fonts. But right there with you, my friend. Right there with you. But also, I, I know. I know. My criticism is. The font font squirrel. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. We can we can point them to better free websites. Well, that's like, why everybody's here, right? We can point exactly. them to better websites. Exactly. And speaking of, I found a tweet today that was a huge thread of open source fonts. And there was like 25 open source fonts. We were featured on there, I think, for mm. Blackout, which was great to see. But go look at that if you need good places to find quality free fonts. It was a tweet. Yes, I retweeted it. So oh, okay. at Olivia K. Letters, if you want to see it, this is not a plug to follow me. I don't post very often. <laughs> it's there. Now is actually kind of a cool time to take a break and say, hey, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Adobe for helping to sponsor this week's episode. Their creative suite is one of the standards of design software and comes with a subscription to like a giant library of fonts that you can install, embed, use pretty much however you like. We've even got a few of our fonts in their library as well, if you're looking for those. And uh, we are grateful for them supporting the community with us. Totally. And thanks, too, to our members. Um, If you don't know, we've got a small and wonderful membership where for a tiny amount every month, you get awesome extra resources in our weekly typographic emails every week. Those are cool fonts that we found that you might want to add to your arsenal. Current jobs or gigs you might be interested in. Um, At the moment, it's only $5 a month, and we're upgrading a bunch soon. So hop in now if you want to get those goodies next week. All right, Micah. It's time. Olivia. It's time. It's time. No, it's perfect. We're going to keep it. <laughs> okay. So today we are talking about optical illusions and type design, which optical illusions are typically just not what I think of when I think of type design, but are wholly integral to how type design works. You cannot have type design without some optical illusions being involved. Why is that? Because they kind of are the whole reason our alphabet and quality typefaces look good is because they take advantage of specific optical effects. And that has to do with the height of letters, the balance of letters, the way horizontal and vertical measurements are used throughout a font. And I will give you plenty of examples. So in the newsletter this week, if you're following along, we uh, included a great article by Heffler and Co. And was written by Jonathan Heffler after the episode in the episode of his studio came out in that Netflix show abstract. Mm. So I think it was like a companion piece, but it's actually super educational. I have so many thoughts about that episode, but I I thought this was, it was a really great way to kind of highlight how these optical illusions works. He has some great illustrations in there that you can follow along with what I'm talking about today. I think he begins this article with just kind of like this very eloquent way of describing how optical illusions work in type design. So I will quickly read that before I go into all the fun effects. Type design is a battle with optical illusions, which we only win through a complete surrender. 
We convince the eye to see things clearly not by creating rational drawings, but through irrational ones by introducing strange distortions that outwit the eye to shape not what we see, but what we think we see. Guys, this is magic. Type designers <laughs> are magicians. Get ready. Okay. So I think I'm going to start with like the most widely understood one, I think, for people that uh, are in graphic design and type design, and that is with the height of our letters. So we commonly know the optical effect that if you have three different shapes of letters in the capital alphabet, we have a square-ish shape. So think about like our H's, our T's, our N's. We have uh, circular shapes like our O's, C's, Q's. And sometimes we have triangular shapes like our A's and V's. So with letters that have a flat top and bottom, T, H, B, any of those, they are usually exactly the same height. But they have comrades, which are round letters, the Q's, the C's, and the O's. And if we made those O's the same exact rational height as the T and the H and the B, those O's would actually appear to be shorter because of the way that the shapes sit next to each other. So that's why we have overshoot, which is an increased height measurement for the O's and the C's to make them appear as their more flat top and bottomed counterparts. Because like the O, there's so much rounding on the sides that it kind of like shrinks your feeling of the thing that you're looking at, right? Like there's exactly. all this negative space where otherwise, you know, on a, on a T there's like actual black bars. Here there's nothing and it's curves, which always kind of like shrink you in, you know, mm. pull you inside. And so mm -hmm. the, you're saying, if they were exactly the same, even though they're exactly the same, the O looks smaller, just our brain processes exactly. it that way. Some research kind of highlighted this one optical illusion that people are familiar with, where there's two line segments. And the let's say the top line segment has chevrons that are pointing outwards, and the bottom line segment has chevrons that are pointing inwards. And then often the one where the chevrons are pointing outwards, it looks bigger, but the line segment's actually equal in both cases. So again, it's the way that the negative space and the positive space are interacting that mm -hmm. make us see things a certain way. So yes, your height of your O's, if you open up a font right now, is going to be slightly, slightly higher height than your T or your B or, you know, your K. So that's like our first most common optical illusion. Then we have the optical illusion that comes from things needing to look balanced. And when I say look balanced, so we are not, again, doing half and half balance is all about the way it looks. So this applies to letters like H, like B, like E, like S, even X. They actually commonly have a little bit more negative space on the bottom to allow for our eyes to actually believe that the true middle of the B and the E is centered. So if you did the exact amount of negative space on a, on a B in the top quadrant and the bottom quadrant, it would feel like not quite right. It wouldn't look quite right. And you'd want a little bit more space on the bottom of that B or same goes for the E. And Wait, can we, it, can we talk about that for just one second? Like, yeah, I think it's possibly for, for somebody new to designing fonts, it's, it's hard to understand it would look not quite right. Or I think, mm -hmm. it, I, I think it'd be tough to understand what we mean by that. 
And it's one of those difficult things where the, the fact behind it is we are so used to reading letters that we have over the many years in our lives grown biased to how letters should work without understanding the, the detail behind it. And I think there's lots of things in life that we are like that with where we don't understand that we expect a certain thing, but we do because of how much we have utilized that thing. And it's kind of like when a doorknob goes the wrong direction. If you have to like twist it the opposite direction in order to open the door, you reach for the door, you try to twist in the right direction. It doesn't quite work. And you're like, wait, what? This doesn't make any sense. How could it not? And then you have to stop and pause and interact with it. Whereas before you were ready to just go through with it. So that feeling of not quite right, I can almost guarantee that you would see that and feel like something is not quite right. And that is the reason why. It's not that you have to have some advanced typographic knowledge to be able to get that feeling of not quite right. This is just kind of the explanation of why that feels not quite right. 100%. You can see it when you look at it. And if if you want to see it more clearly, why don't you just kind of rotate a letter B so that, you know, you see the bottom of the B up top and the top of the B down, down on the bottom face it the right direction, it will feel slightly off. Mm -hmm. The same goes for the letter S, is that like there's going to be a slightly bigger negative space on the bottom of a letter S than on the top, and that will help it look balanced. I like to think of it like sometimes when you actually do notice it, maybe you're critiquing type design, and if you have an equal amount of negative space on the top of an S and a bottom of S, you might almost feel like the top of the S is too heavy and that the S might topple over. Like that's another way to kind of think of it. So that's another way that we use optical illusions to create letters that may seem like they have equal space top and bottom, but really don't. Our next concept, horizontal versus vertical stress in letter forms. It's pretty obvious if you're looking at something like a Dido or a Bodoni. Okay, yeah, your verticals are thick, your horizontals are thin. But those those applications actually also apply to fonts that may seem as if they are the same thickness all around. So something like Helvetica or something like Futura, which seems like, okay, it's the same thickness, like vertical and horizontal. Well, there's actually very subtle differences between that as well. You're, if you go and actually measure, let's say an uppercase T, you will find that even though they appear to be the same horizontally and vertically, the same measurements, if you actually measure it, they'll be a little bit different. The verticals will be a little bit thicker. There's like a few reasons that we think that. I mean, Heffler really is just trying to figure out how we learn to see. And he quoted at some point a peer-reviewed paper that confirmed most people overestimate the thickness of horizontal lines. And so that's why they end up, we end up creating them to be thinner. He also cites an example where there are scientists that think because the way that we view the world, it's a horizontal oval. If we think about using both our eyes, it's not a very vertical orientation. That hmm. also affects the way that we see the thickness of horizontal and vertical lines, which is pretty interesting. This contrast, I love this name for it. Heffler cites it as anistropic contrast, which is a big word, A-N-I-S-T-R-O-P-I-C, which is traditionally defined as something having a physical property that has a different value when measured in different directions. So for example, a piece of wood is stronger along the grain than across it. That's obviously a very different example, but the same reason why when we see a line segment, 
it has a different physical property because we view it to be thicker when it's horizontal than when it's vertical. So it's like a similar idea. I haven't even heard of that before. That's very interesting. interesting. A few other vocab words we have. I was looking through the House Industries Lettering Manual. He cites the Poggendorf illusion. I hope I'm saying that right. It's a 19th century illusion where if you cross a thin diagonal line against a heavy vertical shape, the intersection from when the diagonal enters on the right side to exits on the left, let's say, it doesn't look like it is aligned, even though it's one continuous line. It looks like the line breaks at some point. Mm. Crazy optical illusion, but also accounts for why when you're doing type design for a script or lettering for a script, your entry stroke, let's say you're doing a lowercase l in cursive, you have your entry stroke and you're actually going to design where that diagonal crosses your heavy vertical stroke in a slightly different place than if it did one continuous loop. Which is very similar to like a lowercase x, right? Exactly. Exactly. If you look at most of your fonts, they will show, you'll see it and you'll think that it's just a simple X, but you'll notice that the entry and the exit stroke are slightly different alignment on there. And we, we don't exactly know why that is, do we? I don't. I think part of that actually has to do with creating more negative space. And it's the same reason why we have lots of tapered strokes in sans serif fonts. So if you look at your uppercase A and you look at a diagonal, if you isolate that diagonal, it's it goes from a thicker width at the bottom to a thinner width at top. And that's to allow that the negative shape in the uppercase A has more room. Because mm. if you don't taper, so that negative shape just, let's say we just do one diagonal line, one diagonal line, one line across. That's how we think A's are constructed, basically. But mm. there's more nuance in that the line, the top of the A the diagonal lines actually taper a bit to allow for bigger negative space for it to feel more balanced. That's so interesting. It almost like, I'm I'm sure this is not it, but I want to attribute it to like, we're so used to gravity and like, like things at the bottom need to be a little bit heavier to feel Mm -hmm. like they're sitting on the ground and not floating in space. Totally. And I think people are hypothesizing why we, you know, because I think a lot of these type designers, we do it and we don't think about it another time because we're like, oh, that's the rule. And like, that's actually looks better than if we didn't taper it. So we just continue to do it. But I think that whole idea of gravity, it's a hypothesis that we can think about as to why we might want that. But a whole other idea is, I love this. This goes back to why there's bigger negative space on an uppercase E than the in the bottom than there is in the top is that like Heffler says, if we like are walking around the world and for example, we look at buildings and we're so used to the foreshortening at the top of a building. If you divide a building in half, you're going to notice that with it foreshortened, you're going to have a bigger space on the bottom than you will in the top half. And so wow. That's a very long-winded way to be like, that might be why we want our crossbars for our E's and our H's to be slightly above middle. Interesting. But it's, this is some it's, crazy stuff. This is the kind of stuff that it is, it, You as a newbie type designer, you hear about these things and you're like, how do you know those exist? 
right? Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that there's actually a lot of information about it online now. I I feel like there wasn't even just maybe five years ago. But one last optical effect, this one might be my favorite, and it applies to graphic designers a little bit more as well than the rest of these. But it's also from the House Industries lettering manual. He talks about halation and irradiation, which again, vocab terms I did not know about. Halation, halation. It's a phenomenon created when light spreads beyond the boundaries of an object. It softens the edges and can cause a halo-like effect. So, for example, if we have a completely black page and we have a word in the middle of the page in white text, it's going to maybe, potentially, because of the way that our eyes reading the black and white look slightly bulkier or the white graphics might feel slightly bulkier and the negative spaces may appear to shrink because all of that black that we're seeing is, is you know, kind of affecting the way we see a white graphic. Mm. And then irradiation is the opposite effect where we'll have a black graphic on white and it's much easier to see the negative spaces that are carving in and out of those letter forms because it's easier for our eyes to see that contrast. So it makes you think that, you know, when you're designing even type designer logos, your logo will look different if it's black on white or white on black. And if you have tiny intricacies, maybe negative shapes going in and out of your letter forms, they might get lost a little bit when you put your white logo on black opposed to your black logo on white. That's also super, super useful to understand because in a lot of UI design in the last two years or three years or so, dark mode has become such an important feature. And more often than not, people are just changing the colors. And if it's a very text heavy thing, or if there's anything intricately related to text, or even if there's very tiny text you need to read, that could have an impact on how readable it is. Yeah, I think that's, that is an interesting take when we talk about people's preferences on, you know, dark mode or not. I hate dark mode. I hate it with a passion. I, I, I thought I'd enjoy it a little bit more at night. Cause I was like, Oh, well, it'll be less harsh on my eyes, but I think it might be a legibility thing where I'm just like, so not used to, to reading in that way that it, it grinds my gears. Like insanely. that's the thing is I can't handle the switch when it, when mm. dark mode first came on to iOS, I turned on dark mode. I was like, this looks cool. And then I kept it on dark mode hundred percent of the time. And mm. anytime I would switch to light mode, it was overpowering. And recently I reset my phone and I was like, well, this is supposed to be designed to like switch automatically for that reason, right? Like at night, it's supposed to be easier on my eyes. I'll give that a shot. And it is so uncomfortable when it switches over. And I think Mm -hmm. it is exactly that reason. You're such a wise human. That makes so much sense. You get used to reading it in a particular way. And when it changes, it's different. And it's so tiny and imperceptibly different, but like, as in, like, you, you can't perceive the details of why it's different other than the color, mm-hmm. but it is. Mm-hmm. I feel that. I feel, we're going to end on that note because it's a very <laughs> polarizing issue. That was a great and super educational nerd alert. I love well, yeah. thank you. I want to make a bringing... whole book out that. Oh, we can. We can. We can find all the optical illusion names of all these funny guys in the 19th century that created illusions after their name.
it just seems like such a useful thing that that when you're starting out you just don't know and you're like how do you people know these things and if you like really want to get intricate into it i know whenever i'm working on like let's say a sign when i was in events and i just have one word that i need to center in the middle of the sign i would always move the word slightly above actual rational center because it just looked a little bit better you know so helpful things hopefully what a great session my friend incredible well Micah, right. it's been a pleasure as always yep thanks for everybody for tuning in and uh, all the cool people who sent us some some good links to share this week that was appreciative too and so if you have any other cool things to send us send us the cool things and otherwise we will be back next week with more cool things do 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 <laughs> <laughs>